Hello, a quick message before we begin. We at The Economist hope you enjoy listening to our podcasts as much as we enjoy making them. We're always looking for ways to improve, and to do that, we would like to know more about you, our listeners. Please help us by filling out a short questionnaire at economist.com slash worldaheadsurvey. The link is in the notes for this episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. Hello, I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and you're listening to The World Ahead. This future-gazing podcast series considers the big themes that will shape the coming year, drawing on the predictions and analysis in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2023, which is out now. Over eight episodes, we're discussing the key questions that will prepare you for 2023. This week, we're looking at the economic prospects for the coming year, with inflation at multi-decade highs in many countries. Inflation in the euro area is far too high. Surging food and energy prices are driving inflation ever higher in the UK. Inflation in the United States remains unacceptably high. Two of my economist colleagues who are watching the situation closely are Henry Kerr, our economics editor, and Rachana Shambog, our deputy business affairs editor. Welcome to you both. Hi, Tom. Hi, Tom. Henry, let's start with the big picture. Central banks have been raising rates very aggressively, and they've all been doing it at the same time. And that's unusual, isn't it? It's unusual by the standards of recent years before the pandemic, in that the world was in the situation where interest rates were at rock bottom for a long time and not really going anywhere. Relative to how high inflation is, though, it's unusual how little central banks have actually managed to raise interest rates by historical standards. When you look back at the 70s and 80s, what was done to fight inflation then, by the textbook rules of thumb that economists use when thinking about how much you have to raise interest rates, actually rates haven't gone up that much. So it's been a big shock what's happened. But I wouldn't necessarily describe it as unusual. Really, the unusual period was this rock bottom rates era that preceded it. So in retrospect, the pandemic marked the end of an era of sort of unusual low inflation, unusual low interest rates. So now we're back to our scheduled programming, which is where we raise interest rates to try and tame inflation. Does that make recessions absolutely inevitable? Has it ever been possible to kill off inflation without causing a recession? So typically, the record of the Federal Reserve in America, which is the central bank that's the most important one globally, typically when it raises interest rates, it does cause an economic downturn at least and often a recession. There are instances in post-war history where rates have gone up and recession hasn't followed, but typically not when inflation's been really high at the time when interest rates have gone up. And then if you look around the world, you do have other central banks achieving the so-called soft landing where you raise rates and manage to slow the economy without a recession. Britain, for instance, did this in the in the late 90s, early 2000s. Unlike America, it didn't have a recession then. But it wasn't starting from a point of really high inflation like it is today. So I think what really makes a recession likely in many places is the extent of the inflation problem, not just the fact that central banks are raising interest rates. Right. So we have this very high inflation, the highest it's been for decades. Sounds like you're saying, yes, recessions are coming. Rachel, how do we define them? Does everyone use the same definition? 
No, they don't, Tom. And, and often we don't know that we've been in a recession until months after the fact. In Britain and Europe, the convention tends to be that if you have two consecutive quarters of negative quarter on quarter growth, that counts as a recession. In America, it's a slightly different convention. You've got the National Bureau of Economic Research, which looks at a whole range of data on the economy and on the labor market and then makes a decision that the economy went into recession. And sometimes that judgment is made months after the start date of the recession itself. And then the convention for thinking about a global recession is different as well. There, it tends to be that population growth is taken into account. So the thinking is when GDP per capita growth is negative, that's when the world economy is in recession. We've just hit 8 billion and we're expecting global population growth of about 1% in 2023. So global growth would have to go below 1% and that would then count as a, as a global recession. We're not quite there yet though, are we? That's right. I mean, I don't think forecasters are expecting a, a global recession just yet, but they're not far off. I mean, the World Bank, for example, has global GDP growth at 1.1. So it's And it keeps revising it down as well, doesn't it? So it's OK. So looking iffy. Henry, the adjectives that people are associating with these presumed recessions are that the one in America might be quite mild, the one in Europe will be deeper, and the one in Britain, which we may be in already, will be unusually long. Is that about right? Yes, I think so, with the obvious caveat that the economy is incredibly hard to predict at the moment. America is in a stronger position than Europe because America doesn't have the energy crisis. In America, you're, you're looking at a downturn simply because of the extent of the inflation problem, which is homegrown, which means the Fed has to slow the economy quite dramatically. And the question is, can it do that without without going so far as to cause a recession. In Europe, you're almost guaranteed a recession that may have started already because of the energy crisis which is going on. And then at the same time, you have the European Central Bank raising interest rates and trying to stop the inflation that's being driven by energy from spilling over into the rest of the economy. So you have this sort of dual-pronged attack of circumstances on the economy which make a, a bad recession likely. And Britain sort of has a little bit of everyone's problem and the additional shock of Brexit, which is obviously a multi-year thing that's been going on. It, like America, has a bit of homegrown inflation, has an overheating labour market. It's had people drop out of the labour force during the pandemic and not come back. Like Europe, it has an energy crisis. So it's in the sort of the worst of all possible worlds. And then you add in Brexit and Britain's economic stagnation looks like a, a long-term problem, a long-term decline. Just staying with the US briefly, what are the factors that lead us to conclude that this is likely to be a milder recession than, than you might otherwise have expected? Typically, for a recession to be really bad, you look for some kind of frailty in the economy that's going to be exacerbated by the downturn, some sort of financial fragility or, or weakness on, on balance sheets. But what you have in America is you have households which are really strong because of the savings they built up during the pandemic, because of the stimulus that was injected has left people's personal finances in really good shape. And then secondly, the labour market is starting from a position of such incredible strength. Well, in fact, we asked Simon Rabinovich, our US economics editor, to tell us a bit more about the outlook for the US labour market in 2023. So I think before we talk about what to expect in 2023, it's worth just very briefly recapping where the labour market is today, because it really is in an incredibly unusual position. It's the tightest labour market in decades in America. There's two open jobs for every one person on unemployment insurance in America right now. Now, in 2023, I think we'll begin to see some balance being restored to the labor market. 
not because the supply of workers is going to increase dramatically, but because the demand for them is going to begin to decrease. The Federal Reserve has been very aggressive over the past year in raising interest rates. It's really only in 2023 that we'll begin to see kind of serious concrete downside from all of that tightening. There's already hints that consumption is beginning to slow. Certainly the property market has been hit pretty badly, but that's going to begin to spill over into the economy more generally. And that will then lead to companies doing less hiring and potentially doing more firing. The big question is whether or not the job market will be able to kind of come into balance without having a big increase in unemployment. So the optimistic case is that because demand for workers right now so outstrips supply, theoretically, you should be able to have companies reduce their hiring without the unemployment rate rising significantly. The pessimistic case is that the job market is actually much more complex than that. The workers aren't necessarily in the right places to do the jobs that need to be done. And so when you begin to have companies paring back on their hiring, that will translate into higher unemployment as well. The base case, if you speak to forecasters, and if you look at the Federal Reserve's projections, is that the unemployment rate of 3.7% today will rise to roughly 4.5% by the end of next year. That might sound like a relatively minor change, but in aggregate, that means a million to a million and a half Americans might lose their jobs next year. It's going to be very, very painful for the people who do end up losing their work. It's less severe than previous recessions. But unfortunately, that is the reality that when you've got the central bank actively trying to cool the economy, there is going to be a real cost to be paid. And so I think we will see that next year. Ratchana, which industries do we think are going to be hardest hit by all of this? Where are the biggest risks of job losses? Well, we're seeing already the tech sector, for example, being hit a lot of tech firms expanded very rapidly during the pandemic. There was lots of hope that there'd be huge amounts of growth coming. The sort of prospects are sort of dimming. So we've seen layoffs there. A lot of blue collar jobs, by contrast, there's been lots of demand for workers relative to the supply. So it's quite possible that you end up seeing more of a white collar recession than a blue collar one. And is that true on both sides of the Atlantic? Europe's recession will be different. And that's because of the two kind of forces that will be hitting the economy, as Henry was talking about. You've got the ECB raising interest rates, but you've also got this severe energy shock. And that's going to be hitting energy intensive companies more. So factories have already been shutting down. Others have been coping by importing more of their inputs from the rest of the world or moving some production to China, for example, or, or the US. So the shape of the recession will be different in Europe, and it may be the manufacturing sector actually that will be hit the hardest. So we've seen companies like BASF, Germany's big chemicals giant, actually moving production of some things to other countries just because energy is so expensive. And so those jobs are potentially not coming back ever, are they? Well, that's the question. And I think that's what a lot of European policymakers are worrying about right now. The difficulty is there's only so much they could do to to cushion the impact. Interest rate rises by themselves aren't going to tame inflation in Europe. And a lot depends on what happens with the weather. Governments are focusing on how households cope with the energy shock and making sure that they've got enough income to be able to afford higher energy prices, or in some cases, even sort of trying to cap those prices so they don't rise too far. But there's less support for companies coming. It may be that once they've made a decision to move abroad, they're not going to come back. 
Well, thank you both. In a moment, we'll consider the global knock-on effects of America's monetary policy. But first, a quick reminder. If you don't already have a subscription to The Economist, you're missing out. For unlimited access to our journalism, including our coverage of the world economy and the fight to tame inflation, you can find the best offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. This is The World Ahead from The Economist. I'm Tom Standage, and I'm talking to my colleagues Henry Kerr, our economics editor, and Rashana Shambog, our deputy business affairs editor, about the economic outlook for 2023. In America, the Federal Reserve has been aggressively raising interest rates in response to levels of inflation not seen for decades. But interest rates in America have global implications. Here's Alicia Garcia-Herrero, chief economist for Asia-Pacific at Natixis, a French investment bank. Strong dollar always brings about havoc, basically, in the emerging world. Your debt burden increases as you deal with strong dollar. Why? Because your debt is either dollar-denominated or linked to the dollar in a way or another. If you are a country with a very low external debt, say China, and a massive manufacturing capacity then you don't suffer as much from strong dollar. So maybe not for the Gulf, because they export in dollar and they don't have any debt, not for China, but certainly for Latin America, for frontier markets, which are very much indebted in dollar, this is a huge problem. And this directly impacts citizens around the world. So imagine that, I don't know, I have 20% of GDP in tax revenue, if I'm lucky. Many emerging economies have much less than that. But you need to pay 10% in interest payments, which used to be, say, 5 but because of a strong dollar and interest rates moving from barely 0.25 to all the way to 4.75 probably in March. Just imagine. So the space that the government has to deal with, I don't know, everything, yeah, from health to education is literally all of a sudden half of what it was. That's how it affects people directly. And I think we need to realize that the Fed and a strong dollar is affecting millions of people all over the world. Okay, Henry, I'm not an economist, but let me see if I've got this straight. Higher rates in America makes the dollar more attractive to investors, so it gets stronger relative to other currencies. So if your debts are in dollars, those debts get harder to repay. So which countries are worst affected and hardest hit by these higher US rates and thus a stronger dollar? So it depends on the extent of that dollar borrowing. So what we've seen over the past decade or so is a lot of middle income countries become more robust to movements in currency markets because they have been tilting their borrowing towards local currencies rather than dollar denominated debts. The countries that are really vulnerable tend to be in the poor world, especially in Africa. And indeed, we've already seen countries like Zambia run into problems, for instance, who have more dollar denominated debt, have less fiscal capacity, have potentially been hit by the pandemic in quite a brutal way. And while these countries tend not to be systemically important for the global economy in the way that big middle income countries could be and have been in past economic cycles, nonetheless, them running into economic trouble causes an awful lot of human suffering. So I would say that that's the biggest problem when thinking about the spillover of the strong dollar. It's those poor countries, predominantly in Africa. 
Right, to know what does this mean? I mean, I can see if you're a government and you're trying to repay your debts, then this is a problem. How does this filter through into being a problem for businesses, for ordinary people? How does a, a strong dollar and high rates in America affect them? Where governments across the emerging world as a whole have begun borrowing more in local currency and less in foreign currency in the dollar, you've still got companies that have a lot of external debt, so debt that's denominated in dollars. If you look at Turkey, for example, companies there have are quite vulnerable. They've got large amounts of dollar-denominated debt. So a strong dollar and rising interest rates in America is a problem for them because they owe money in dollar terms. The other problem that consumers will face is that the cost of imports start going up. So if you're living in a country where your food is being imported and lots of agricultural commodities tend to be denominated in the dollar, then you start to have problems as well. And energy, of course, is denominated in the dollar. On top of that, you've got this energy shock. So that's when currency weakness starts to be a, a problem. Okay, so I suppose the big question is, what do we think is going to happen next year? It looks like inflation might have peaked in the US. So where do we think we're going to end up by the end of next year? Henry, what would you say? It's very likely that headline inflation comes down. That, as you say, has already started happening in America. It's likely to happen in Europe too, simply because the big run-up in commodities prices is not going to be repeated. Inflation is the rate of change of prices. It's not just high prices. So all you need is prices not to go up as fast and inflation comes down. So you get that headline effect coming through next year. But I think that underlying inflation which you can see in in wage growth, you can see in prices of non-energy goods, is likely to prove troublingly persistent. And that where you are at the end of next year is people feeling a bit more comfortable because headline inflation has come down, but really central banks having to decide how much pain they're willing to inflict on the economy to get rid of that remaining underlying inflation problem, because they're still going to be quite a long way from their 2% target. And that's where the debate's going to be. Rashida, where do you think we're going to be in a year's time? Well, one thing I would just add is that what's been interesting so far is that emerging markets haven't had a worse inflation problem than the rich world. So emerging markets, central banks were quite speedy and quite quick, actually, to act when inflation started to rise faster than the Federal Reserve, for example. So where once we might have worried about the fact that there might be runaway inflation in emerging markets, that won't be so much of a worry. They may have the same, exactly the same problem that Henry describes, where inflation proves stickier, but it won't be a sort of nightmare inflation spiraling out of control situation. Apart from places like Turkey, where you just don't have good policy making and you've seen interest rates falling rather than rising, even though inflation is at 80 plus percent. Okay. And are there any sort of particular bright spots? Are there countries that are prospering amid all of this? Commodity exporters have had a good 2022 and they may have a good 2023 as well. You know, they've benefited as energy prices have stayed high as a result of the war in Ukraine. That might continue. A country like Indonesia, for example, is sitting on vast amounts of nickel, metals needed for EV batteries. So commodity exporters might do very well, perhaps commodity importers less well. I think anywhere with the capacity to build out its LNG export infrastructure is going to be having a pretty great time over the next couple of years, given the increased demand for LNG imports from Europe as it tries to wean itself off Russian gas. Brilliant. Well, it just so happens that we're talking about energy next week. But what's really striking is how all of these different um, challenges that the world faces in 2023 seem to be uh, very tangled up with each other. So thank you very much, Rachner and Henry. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. And thank you for listening to The World Ahead. You can read more about trends to watch out for in the coming year in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2023, which is on newsstands now and available online at economist.com slash worldahead2023. Next week, as I said, we'll be looking at the outlook for energy markets and the fight against climate change. 
Do join us then. This episode was a Tempo and Talker production for The Economist. The producer is Anouk Mie and the executive producer is Sandra Schmuelli. I'm Tom Standage in London. This is The Economist. <laughs> 